Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White, or I am your host today on this Sunday afternoon. We are in the Link Center in Tupelo, Mississippi, with uh, one of the greats, Key Francis. Key, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Malcolm. It's a pleasure to come in and talk to you. And you, uh, you're back in Tupelo. You, you grew uh, up here. You went away. And even though Thomas Wolfe says you can never go home again, you, you've come home. Well, you know, the same man doesn't get in the river the same place at the same every right. time. And right? the water's always moving. Always moving. moving. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of changes since I left, and uh, for the better, I think. Economy's grown. People are uh, more receptive to the arts. Uh, interesting place to be working. But you did grow up here. I did grow up in Tupelo. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, but you went away after college, or you went away to college and didn't come back until recently? Well, I went away to college, and then I taught for two years, made enough money to buy a studio. And then I moved back to Tupelo in 1970. And then from 70 to 96, I just worked as a professional artist in Tupelo. And then in 96, I went to the University of Central Florida to run their collaborative print project program down there. Then I became uh, chair of the art department and finally dean of research down there. And then I retired from that, came back, opened a studio, and now work from 4 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. And and a you, long work day. <laughs> and, and you're back on your family property? Do I have that right? That's right, yeah. Uh, it's my, it was my grandfather's place. And I, in 70, 1970, I built buildings there and, and set up, established a press in, at that point. And did a lot of collaborative printing and printed my own work. And then I, at one point, moved to the University of Central Florida in Orlando, moved the presses down there. And then I moved everything back here and plugged them right back into the wall where they were plugged 20 years earlier. So I'm right back where I started. You're, you're a mobile press. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> so I'm going to take a stab at it uh, calling what you do narrative art that's a good um, good label y- you work uh in the visual uh arena but you also are a storyteller and you tell your stories both through your visual art and through the written word that's right and you you, you paint paintings you create uh works of art that you sell but you also make books that's right and and then you have this uh ancient printing equipment that you have <laughs> buildings full on your property that's that's correct so you're a printer i am a printer in the sort of a primitive focus of that but uh you know a lot of what's going on in the history of printing has has to do with uh, mass production and when you come when it comes down to quality there's some forms of printing that are just the highest quality and those quality standards haven't changed, uh, they may have been maintained and there have been faster ways to reproduce an image, but the quality that I work with has been the same really since Gutenberg. I mean, Mm -hmm. it hadn't changed. Uh, The way the ink is absorbed by the paper, the way the ink is passed from the type to the paper, the way the image is set from a woodcut over, those things have remained the same, haven't changed. And and in your work, you say that you uh, you really 
prefer uh, mythology and isolation as a couple of your themes. Is that right. that's safe true. To, to say? Yeah, that's true. I think there's a there's a myth about agrarianism that I I think I hold to and sometimes try to dispel and sometimes support. And and I think the idea of of isolation is is something that's well, you you're born alone and you die alone. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't get away from that, no right. matter how much you try. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you and you again create all of these uh, pieces of of artwork, and and you sell some of them here locally in at, at the Cam Karen's Gallery. Karen's Gallery, but you also sell. You also have a larger universe. Of, right. of supporters. I do. I've, I've got a show coming up at the Center for Book Arts in New York uh, in a few months, and we have a show, uh, Fisher Gallery, to go with the book festival. Uh, in of, Jackson. In Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, show at the Arts Company in Nashville. Uh, those, are, those are primary places right now, but continue to do museum shows. I've got a show of the books coming up at Brooks Museum in Memphis that's going to open in April, run for three months. So I, I stay busy, and the work gets out there and moves around. How many books do you have you created? Probably about 15, mm-hmm. uh, 15 but they're small editions, understand. Right, they're I mean, tiny they're editions. Right? Tiny editions, yeah, by today's standards. 50, 100 books. Is, All handmade books. Uh, yeah, handmade All books. All of original yeah, that hand you bound. Handbound. Yeah, handbound. I print. And I do the illustration. I write the story. I do the illustration. I design the book. I print the book. I bind the book. So. And some sometimes these days there's music involved. Music, yes, right. I'm working with Tom Kimmel on a book now. We were just talking about that, but uh, yeah, I, so that it's possible now to use quite a, a lot of audio uh, information in a book, included in the, with a thumb drive or a small. Uh, chip mm-hmm. you know right. uh, and i've been doing recordings of the of the stories that i write and now i'm putting those in the books so that they're so it has sort of a, a dvd component component in the book in the built book in, in a sleeve right and in sleeves and then the little chips that you plug into the earphones uh-huh. so you can put like five or six stories in that or you can put just the story that relates to an installation a person can put on the earphones and plug me telling the story while they walk around and look at the work. So you've got one foot firmly uh, planted in Ben Franklin and yep. another one uh, in the 21st century. Exactly. Ben Franklin was an early idol of mine. I, I thought he was just tremendous. And I, I, I think it probably when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, I read the autobiography or the biography of Ben Franklin. And and I was impressed with a guy who was interested in science and invented wood stoves and and uh, managed to print and write Poor Richard's Almanac and then became a, uh, a statesman. A founding father. Yeah, founding father. I think so he it, was the governor of, of uh, Pennsylvania at one time, maybe? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure about He's, that. He, 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 and he was an ambassador to he France, was an ambassador, an ambassador to, France. Yeah, to Switzerland. Quite a... He was all over the place. He was. Really interesting character. You know, I I think, uh, well, I think I became an artist because I it was something that's hard to define. And I, I said, I, I think at one point in a conversation, I said to somebody that I thought, I felt like, uh, you know, if you'd ask Ben Franklin what he was, he would have 
if he had been in the 2020, he probably would have said, uh, yeah, I'm an artist. Right. Uh, right. Because it's hard to define. You know, I mean, you have people that are uh, covering railroads with uh, wrapped fabric, and you have people that are uh, doing paintings, and you have people that are doing performance work, and it, it's, a, it's a pretty open field. So my decision to be an artist, I think, was the fact that it was a field and that was hard to define. And my interest in engineering and presses and my interest in casting lead type and my interest in writing and my interest in uh, all of these visual arts, photography. I had a dark room from the time I've been eight years old. Uh, that All of these things that were interests of mine sort of fit neatly into a, an undefined package. I guess today's Keith Francis. He lives and works and creates in Tupelo, Mississippi, on uh, some property that's been in his family for a long, long time. How many since you, the '30s? Since the '30s. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> you are what you have become. You've been this for your entire life. I don't think, if I'm wrong, that you ever chased after any other career other than the one of being an artist. Well, that's it. Yeah, I, I mean, I at one point when I moved to the University of Central Florida, I was there to run their fine art press and work collaboratively with poets and other artists to do books. And I, that, of course, ended up, I, I had 26 years experience doing contracts and uh, and quite a lot of interesting business things. So I knew how to run a budget. And so uh, it quickly became a parent to them that they needed to put me in charge of anything that had to do with finances so that I could balance a budget and run the department. So I became the chair of the department. And, and did this come to you quite naturally or did you study business and finance? I didn't have finance? to study it. I okay. mean, it was what I was already doing. You, you, I, I, was, I was already you doing You came this way. Well, yeah, I'm a, I, I went as an administrator to run a press, mm -hmm. and then I just moved that administrative, some of the administrative duties to run in a department. And then as a result of my grant history, the ability to get grants, uh, they made me the dean of research at the, at this, at the College of Arts and Humanities, uh, really to help people interpret their, to say what they're trying to do in right. both science and uh, technology and digital media and film and they each of those fields has has its own language and it's not an, a language that's easily comprehended by a layman and my job was to help these guys with very sophisticated technical lingo uh, come up with the layman's terms to express what they wanted to do. So when they applied for grants, whoever was reading the grant could understand what they were saying they wanted to do. And that went all the way from nanoscience to you know, people trying to make high-energy high batteries to, to creative writers. Mm -hmm. So you have always lived in both sides of your brain, right and left. Exactly. Been creative yeah. and also was yeah. very capable of taking care of yourself financially. Yeah, I have... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I that's I do have a try to keep it in the black. Yeah. You know? <laughs> now, uh, growing up, uh, uh, when were you first sort of introduced to art and the creative uh, forces, and how did you begin to grow that? Well, I in Tupelo didn't have it. It had a private art teacher. We didn't have any public art classes, 
I mean, we were the three R's, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> remember it well. Remember it well. <laughs> but I, I, I was interested in art. I had an uncle that had had done. He would made a living during the Depression painting chair cola signs on the side of buildings. And, and a muralist. A, a muralist, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he he actually ran a very successful uh, rigging business that moved corporations from one location to another. But he, he painted as a hobby, and he made a lot more money than most people make now in the arts by renting his paintings. And, uh, really, and he he was uh, he was a uh, quite a business quite person. an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah, he was. He did paintings of hog killings and people picking cotton, and uh, and he would he would sell office equipment to to the companies, and then he would rent them the paintings, and he 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 made quite a lot of money at this. And he he uh, encouraged me in art, and he gave me oil paints to practice with till he found out I was copying Picasso, and then he. <laughs> He quit sending me any money. He didn't want anything, he didn't want to, do with anything to do with that. He, he quit sending me paint. I had to make it on my <laughs> own from there on. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today on this Sunday afternoon, and we hope you are enjoying your day. We also can be heard uh, via podcast uh, if you want to go to the MPB website and check all of that detail out. But my guest today is uh, the one and only Key Francis. Key Francis from Tupelo, Mississippi. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you, Malcolm. And uh, you grew up here, uh, as we spoke of earlier, Went away a couple of times and came back. You've actually yep. returned home on more than one occasion. That's correct. Yeah, uh, and you are a uh, a narrative artist. I am. You you uh, create stories. Uh, I wonder if you would just help us to uh, maybe get a little bit more clued in. Talk about your description of the art that you make and how you weave both the creative and the scientific uh, into that process. Well, I I think first. To say that a person's a narrative artist, I mean, there's a history of illustration, which is one direction people can go with narration and art. Uh, that's where the word, I think, is predominant, and then the visual is in support of the word. Second is, is I think, a more an implied narrative, which is the images that are on the canvas or in the print or the whatever, um, are in a dialogue with each other, and you can tell it's from the tradition of narration, but the, but it's left up to the viewer to to interpret that what what story might be going on there. And I try to employ both of those. I try to 
some some of the work stands on its own as a painting. It doesn't really need any words or story to go with it. And mm-hmm. then sometimes I actually illustrate my own stories. So that that kind of a separate separate function. Sometimes I'll do a painting just intuitively, and then from that intuitive painting, I'll a, a story will be generated. So it can go back and forth either way. The I think the crossover with industry and technology has to do my interest in those things has to do with uh, uh, etching the plates mm. figuring out how to galvanically etch them using electricity rather than acids and things that are harm- harmful to the environment uh, trying to figure out different ways to approach technical problems that I face uh, to to take into you know consideration the the way these things impact the environment or what's good for my health right, right. <laughs> and I'm interested in technology in the sense of the presses and how they function and as well as being an artist you've also been a teacher for years did you see those two things as compatible did you struggle with the going back and forth between being a creative and and being sort of a, a, a mentor and a provider of information to young people well, I, I I laughed and told one of them the other day. So they, somebody came up to me at the opening at Marcy Fisher's gallery and said, you know, one of the artists here was saying what a great teacher you was and I, you were. And I, I said, well, I, I I don't think I was that good a teacher. I think I entertained them while they learned a lot, you know. And I I think it, it, if I've taught anything, I think I've taught it by a, by them observing. Uh, how I go about things. I work hard. I work long hours. I work cross-discipline. Uh, and I I keep accurate books and records, and I, I run a successful business. I've done that for, you know, almost 50 years. So uh, I think there's there are, there are things to be learned from me. I don't know that I'm very good at communicating those, but smart people watch Mm -hmm, (laughs) and they they hang around till they figure it out and and artists are really best at that anyway i think they're really best at looking at visual artists they're better at watching somebody do something and picking it up than they are being instructed verbally how to proceed on something so so yeah i I think i i have taught a lot of workshops those are just short run technical things and i'm i can teach those because i'm competent technically Mm -hmm. but but uh, in terms of making an artist, I'm not really sure how you go about doing that. I think a person might be born an artist or, or they have a need to communicate. They, I, I think art is a, a, the sensory exploration of a philosophy or the expression of a philosophy. You know, I mean, if you have a, a, a person who's working uh, with the uh, taste in smell they they become chefs and right. they they express the philosophy of support for regionally grown vegetables and produce you know uh you might uh, in the visual arts that's your strong your strength would be your eyesight audio if you're a musician you know your audio sensory uh strengths would lead you into music so I, I i think i have a cross of those i i use quite a number of them through the process and if if you have those you either have those or you don't there's not much way to for a person to teach you to be more sensitive with your eyes 
I mean, you can learn to look, or you can learn to measure, or you can learn to match color, but you can't. That won't be your strongest strength. Can you teach composition? You can teach composition, mm-hmm. and and you can teach structure, color. Uh, color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are quite a number of things: measurement. Yeah. Uh, you light. Know, where to? Like where? How to, yeah. How light reveals form. Uh, there, there are quite a number of things you can teach, and I have taught those. You know, my theory about artists is if if you take an artist out in the parking lot and you beat them with a two by four and tell them if you're ever going to make art again, I'm going to do this again. You can't stop them. <laughs> they say when is the appointment? Yeah. They're not going to quit. They're right? not going to quit. <laughs> uh, some people have theorized that uh, young artists. Uh, are, are more uh, successful because of struggle and that the early days when there's less money and less comfort, uh, there's more of a struggle and the greater work is produced. And as you get older, you get more successful and comfortable and the work diminishes. What is your thoughts on that? Well, if, if, you're, if you're an artist driven by passion uh, and you went into it because you needed to express yourself, uh, as opposed to searching for fame and fortune, uh, you're probably going to keep on. You, you will be part of what I call the laterally mobile. However mm-hmm. much money you make, you spend on your art, mm-hmm. and the more you make, the more you have to spend. But it, you don't, you don't get any more comfortable, and you work your life and your work pretty much follows the same path that from beginning to end i mean i wake up at four o'clock in the morning and i write from four to six and i'm out at the studio about seven thirty, and i go till six and i do that six days a week you know uh I, and i'm i don't work on inspiration i mean i'm nearly always seven years behind uh and i, I, I base my work on the work that was successful before and I look at what was unsuccessful and try to make those corrections and and that keeps me running six or seven years behind so so inspiration is not a very big thing I just approach it like a hard-working blue-collar guy (laughs) (laughs) wow so uh tell me a little bit about timing and sequencing it's it's a theme uh in your work that you take from film or film Mm -hmm. also uses timing and sequencing Talk a little bit about that, if you would mind. Well, I think uh, any good storyteller is aware of how long you can maintain a person's attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a good public speaker, that's a, that's an issue, right? I mean, you start looking out across the audience out there and their their heads are down and <laughs> you hear a snore or two, you're, <laughs> you're through. Uh, but, you know, I, I think if you're... Timing is has a lot to do with the arts, and it has a lot to do with uh, the way you read a composition. Your your the the amount of time you're willing to invest in and in looking at an image. Uh, so so how you how these things would play into a book, say, which is a sequential narrative. Right. Uh, turning the pages uh, is following a sequence, and the, the amount of time it takes to move through that page of text and then to turn the page and come to a new idea. All of that is timing sequence. And I, I, I said, I think at one point in your my conversations in the past, your notes, I think, uh, I said that 
a lot of the great ones are comedians. I mean, right. they they have the sharpest uh, the sharpest idea of timing. I mean, timing's critical. Uh, Buster Keaton, you know, people like that. Uh, Kramer. Kramer. You said Kramer. <laughs> Kramer. Yeah, I said Kramer. <laughs> Kramer. I mean, you know, people that are, are, are uh, actively involved in the timing and delivery of information are, you know, they understand a lot about human perception and about the about a, a person's attention span and how to maintain interest in the work. I mean, a novelist would understand that, a good one, how to, how to get from chapter to chapter and have a beginning, a middle, and end, and keep people keep there all the way through. Right. Now, when you create these books, are you both the writer and the editor, as well as the illustrator? Well, my wife is the editor. Okay. Yeah, she. Has so you a need some, a little bit of outside. I, I do guidance. Yeah, I I think I need uh, a person to to I I'm, I tend to elaborate. I, I need to have somebody help. Editor is good at thin uh, it, get, reducing get to, the point, and, get to the point. Right, right. You know, right. and and you know, basically to add the commas at the right place. I tend to put a comma in when I want to break, and I, that's not always the best place. Right. I, <laughs> so do y'all have these uh, little family uh, moments where you're actually, debating about the the editing of one of your books? Actually, before we were married. She was editing my work. And, oh, okay. And, uh, so she she's an educated and trained editor. Uh, yeah, she who is. You just happened to have married. Yeah. Okay. I and uh, you know, uh, I I think that part of it is is interesting in the the sense that she she edits poets too oh. when when we were publishing poets and editing poets is a lot harder than editing the narrative writer because poets always say, well, that's what I intended. Right. <laughs> Regardless of Regardless what the editor of, says, it was a correction of the <laughs> <laughs> the correct English. Uh, you know, so so it's been fun. We've worked together on a number of different projects where I was printing the books and working with poets, and she would edit the text. and And of course, that was always a challenge. I'm I think I'm probably not as hard to edit as a as a poet. Although I write poetry, some poetry. I was going to ask if you yeah. if you write poetry, and some yeah. of your books, it seems like you there's a little poetry thrown in here and there. Yeah, there's just poetic uh, moments in there, mm-hmm. but I, I, I'm I'm much. I think I'm my thoughts are they tend to extend themselves, and and I'm not long form as opposed long to short form, form as opposed as opposed to short. Yeah, I'm not succinct. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White, your host today, also the executive director of your Mississippi Arts Commission in the studio in the Link Center in Tupelo, Mississippi, today with my friend Key Francis. Welcome back, Key. Thank you, Malcolm. A narrative artist. Right. Right-brainer and a left-brainer. And once a teacher, always a teacher, I suppose. Uh-huh. I think and so. one of the things I've observed about your career is uh, even when you leave uh, students behind and move to another geography, the students often follow you. Well, that's been a surprise. <laughs> so, so here in Tupelo, on your grandfather's land, on your grandfather's place where all of your equipment is, uh, there's always a handful of students, former students, who follow you here to Tupelo to continue their education and, I guess, to be inspired about how to, how to enter the creative economy. Talk a little bit about that phenomenon and these people uh, who are new to Tupelo and they're here because they've followed you up here. Well, uh, about eight of them followed me up here, and that was a surprise. One night we were sitting around having a beer, and they said, we, we hear you're leaving. Where are you going? And I said, Tupelo, Mississippi, and they said they – took another sip of beer and talked amongst themselves. And then they turned and said, well, we're coming too. And and I said, right, sure. And then two of them graduated and came up. And there was an extra house on my place. And so they stayed in that house uh, until they got ready to go to grad school. And and then they left and went to grad school and some more came up here. And they've all rented houses, bought houses in Tupelo, uh, sold houses in Tupelo, gone back to grad school, and, and one of them's now finished grad school from Tyler in Philadelphia and, and has moved back to Tupelo, and she's currently working out at the, on my, my farm at my, in a shop separate from my studio. But she, she and the rest of them went off and found some presses and equipment, moved it back, and took over my lawnmower repair shop and, <laughs> and made a studio of their own they got tired of dodging me but, but uh yeah they've they garden and and uh interested in growing things and and like i say most of them right now are off at grad school so we'll see how many move back but it's but it's an interesting idea I, originally as we talked about it i think they came with the idea i, I told them that i thought the first two years after you graduated were maybe the hardest on artists because you've, you've gone through a period of time when you've received a lot of support and you're everybody's praising you for the work you're doing and then all of a sudden and, and you are, are have a facility to work in equipment to work in you have your parents support in a lot of cases or, or a minimum job and you're not you splitting the rent with your pals and, and whatever but uh, those those years when you leave and uh, and the the praise falls off and the, you enter competitive shows and don't get in and and uh, the work is long and hard and and you have to have another job forty hours a week or something to pay the rent and buy food. Uh, those are the years that are hard for artists. And I I thought well if they came up and worked at my place I'd I'd let them work in my studio and use my equipment my presses and and I. Uh, and in some cases, my materials, if I have lots of materials, uh, I, they can help themselves uh, to paint, ink, and paper, whatever's around, uh, that it would get them through those couple of years. And and then they could decide if they wanted to go to grad school, maybe to teach later on, or if they 
would find gallery connections, and I tried to hook them up with galleries and get them where they were selling work. And uh, that's working, it seems. They're still in it, all of them. Uh, one of them moved into music, which mm. was an interesting shift, went out to build guitars and play in a band in Dallas. And that was that's the only one that's sort of shifted course. Everybody else is still on the visual arts course, and there are most of them are in graduate school except for the one that's already graduated. So, But they come and they work in the shop and they, we do shows together. Right now at Mississippi College, there's a show that's of, of mine that's up with six of those people and, and my work. Uh, and they're all, the work's getting better and better. It always cheers me up to see them. Some, and the ones that are grad school, I don't see what they do and then we'll do a show together and yeah. and I see the work and it's constantly improving. And, and I be interesting to see how it works. I, I think when you think about, uh, you think about the economy of an artist. Uh, it's one of the things that people don't think about a lot is is the contribution an artist might make to a community. Uh, I mean, I, I know in the fifty years that I've done work, I I spend between forty and ninety thousand dollars a year on support services and supplies. Uh, that's all coming back to the to the economy. I mean, if you average that fifty thousand dollars a year, and you you do it fifty years, you've got two and a half million dollars an artist is generating to their community. That's quite that's quite a contribution. You bring ten artists to the to the location, you've got twenty five million coming out of of a fifty year span into the economy. Then they're also renting. They're 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 uh, buying food. They're and if they're selling work. That matches that fifty thousand dollars of supplies and material, and you're figuring their time on top of that. They, then the galleries are selling their work for twice that, which is a hundred thousand, and you're figuring seven percent uh, tax on that coming out of the gallery going to the state. You know, all of these things total up to be quite a economic boon. And 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 to think about it, people don't. You know. They're used to thinking about artists as hobbyists, right? And people who do this and have other professions, and they do it as a hobby. But when you're talking about professional artists, I mean, you're talking about they're manufacturers, right? I mean, it's not like they're they're selling something they're buying from somebody else with a small markup. They're taking something from Lowe's, plywood or whatever, and they're in paper, and they're producing something, and that then they're marketing it up a considerable amount and selling it. So the so the economy is. Is, uh, is uh, the economic development aspect of that's pretty important? Yeah, that's that's an impressive narrative on the contribution of the artist uh, to the to the community and to the economy. Right, and uh, it's always helpful. Unfortunately, we often have to make a case for why we are relevant. And I think you've just done so very <laughs> eloquently. So, Keith Francis is my guest today on the Arts Hour, and we are in Tupelo at the Link Center. Uh, having this conversation. You told me once that your favorite art form uh, is music, but yet you have no talent in that arena. That's right. <laughs> that must be devastating <laughs> to a guy who otherwise <laughs> is blessed beyond imagination. Well, I was raised in a family that could play any, almost any instrument and any tune by ear, and they were tremendously good musicians, well, in most cases, a lot of times there was a lot of bad music too, depending on how much bourbon had been consumed. But, but you know, I, I think as as well, I I, I enjoyed. I, I grew up when there was no television, right? Right. Uh, I didn't have a television till I was probably 
13. Uh, but those early years, before I was old enough to drive a car, date, and leave, uh, I, I think were spent on the porch listening to my father play a violin and my grandfather play a harmonica and a guitar. My mother could play an accordion and my grandmother played an organ or piano. And and uh, and everybody came over afterwards after the day's work and they had a bourbon and told stories. And I mean, outrageous stories sometimes about it. My, one of my neighbors told me that the other neighbor, true name, Mr. Pickle, had, had died. And I said, why, how? And he said, well... He uh, he went up in the with a crop duster in an airplane and and a a, co- a, a storm pushed him out of the, off course and and they ran out of gas and they starved to death up there they couldn't get down. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I listened to this and I thought, man, what a fantastic uh, tall tale, you know. But it was that way every night. Somebody yeah. was had some crazy story and some outrageous end and and uh, and then they would play. Music and I, I always love music, and, I, and there's hardly anything that can change my mood faster than music. I mean, I, I uh, if if I'm feeling low, I can music will bring me right out of mm. that, and uh, and it, it's a great thing. I, music is a great thing. I just I bought a guitar one time, a twelve string guitar, and oh boy, and that it, was your first mistake. That's a mistake, right? I had a twelve string. Yeah, <laughs> that beat the devil out of anybody. Yeah. Just anyway, trying to tune it. Yeah, just trying to tune it. Was anyway. I took. I was teaching at the Cleveland Art Institute, and I would, they hired me after I graduated to teach there, and offered me a professorship there actually. But I, I chose to come back to Mississippi. But, but anyway, I was taking these guitar classes, and the guy, after about two months, the guy said, "Somebody told me you taught at the Cleveland Art Institute," and I said, "That's right." And he said, "They told me you were good. That you were pretty good." <laughs> I said, "Well." maybe and he said well i'm going to tell you you better go back to that because you have absolutely no talent as a musician you're practically stone you know tone deaf you know <laughs> you'll, you'll never pick Crush up you. music so i still have the guitar yeah, you know well, I, but i never pick it up but you know i was i was blessed that somebody told me that right i would have hated to have spent all this time at something that i had Absolutely little, well, very little talent for, but but I do love music, yeah. I mean, that's my favorite art form. Now, these sessions on the front porch uh, with your family, or was this in the house that you live in now? Yeah. it was Same house? Same house, yeah. Same house. It was my grandfather's house, and everybody would get out together out there and at least three or four times a week. And I, I really, my father traveled and my mother had a job, and, a lot of times I would just stay with my grandparents. My grandfather was a self-educated electrical engineer. I mean, super high IQ guy. Read me the Iliad when I was about 10 years old. Uh, he was self-educated, uh, worked on the TVA dams. I wow. uh, was an engineer and a really interesting person. Was raised with the Seminole Indians. His father was Episcopal missionary. And uh, he was quite quite a character. I mean, he's still talked about it in this town here. Hmm. Uh, streets named after him and stuff. But, but um, what was his name? Fred Trout. Trout, uh-huh. like the fish. But you know, it's very interesting being raised around him. Anyway, he was. Yeah. So when we first started this conversation, we talked about the agrarian narrative, and mm-hmm. uh, so you've sort of in 
in many ways return back to that. You're on the land where mm-hmm. your grandparents live. You, you're a, a gardener and a farmer of some sort, yeah. right? I mean, you yeah. you participate in growing I have a tractor. things. <laughs> you have a tractor <laughs> and a bush hog and a bush but hog. But you you garden. Tiller. But you garden. Right? I garden. I yeah. do, and I've encouraged these young people that have uh, that are have come to garden and to learn something about nurturing and growing vegetables and plants and flowers and whatever they're interested in. Uh, and in some cases, they've worked uh, at Native Sun, which is a, a organic farm here in, in Tupelo, which has done very well. I mean, it supplies a lot of the grocery and uh, and restaurants around. But, yeah, I, I think it's, there's something important about about uh growing things and and i and i think we're coming on a time when that may be even more important as as uh the cost of gas and fuel goes higher and higher and the idea of you know bringing a tomato from california is is gonna hopefully end (laughs) (laughs) so we only have a minute left but Uh, you grew up here in tupelo what influence or impact did elvis presley's life have on yours if well, any. I, well, I had his books when we were in, in high school. You know how you have 10 years and they're signed in the front and back of the book. Right. And, and we had the same homeroom teacher, Miss Miss P.K. Thomas, and before he left and went to Memphis but and to Humes. But but I, we had the, we had the same had, – I had his books. And then he went on the Ed Sullivan show, and, and I had to – people stole his books, and I had to pay for them. <laughs> so that was the impact he had on me. I, I, had to, I, I had his books. They were stolen, and I had to pay for them. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app.